Okay, we are one minute early, so I'm going to get us started so Randy can actually start exactly on time. I went uh, one minute over, minute and a quarter, my last talk, and I feel bad about that. Uh, so we're going to uh, start a little bit early. Uh, first point, I hope everyone has this in your hands. If you don't, uh, someone will get one to you because uh, Professor Barnett will be referring to it, and it's useful to have your, your user guide. Um, it is really, I think, uh, uh, an honor to be able to introduce Randy. Randy is not just an academic. He's not just a professor. Not that that's a bad thing, uh, teaching students and so on. But he has been working very hard for a long time developing the doctrines, the legal ideas, and the foundations for cases that have made it to the Supreme Court that are dramatically and importantly altering the uh, use of constitutional law in this country. And so really, he is one of the, the dynamos of the American legal process. His writing is also uh, wonderful. It's easy to read. We do have this book here available. This is one of the best introductions to libertarian thought from the perspective or through the lens of the law that I know. Other books he's written, Restoring the Lost Constitution, and then the new one that will be coming out, which we'll talk about on our Republican Constitution. Randy Barnett. Well, thank you, Tom. It's uh, great to be here at Cato, um, Cato University. I've been doing some version of Cato University back since then. It was in Dartmouth uh, back in the 80s, I don't know, 70s, whenever it was, long time ago. Uh, it's a good-looking group. The, these lights are a little bright here, so I can only sort of see you. Uh, the way my uh, lectures are going to lay out is today I'm going to talk about the Declaration of Independence. Was the Declaration of Independence right? And the reason why it's great to have this because I'm going to be going through the text of the first two paragraphs of the Declaration. Um, and then tomorrow I'm going to talk about the U.S. Constitution. Um, how are you, the two different conflicting visions of the U.S. Constitution that are out there and have really, in some respects, always been there, the Democratic Constitution and the Republican Constitution, that's tomorrow. It, that's the, uh, I know, it's, that's the subject of my new book called Our Republican Constitution, which will be out in February, um, and I'll explain what those terms mean. And then finally, uh, on uh, Thursday, this is slightly out of order from your program, which is why I'm announcing it to you. On, on Thursday, I'm going to be talking about something that is uh, also going to be based on the Structure of Liberty book that Tom held up for you, and that is called The Modesty of Libertarianism, in which I argue that, in fact, it is the left and the right who are the true radicals uh, and extremists, um, uh, and that we are actually quite moderate and modest, even though everybody likes to paint us as radicals and extremists. So uh, that's going to be my Thursday talk. But today, we're going to go through the Declaration of Independence because the Declaration provides the uh, theoretical foundation for the country um, as well as for the Constitution that came sometime later. Now, our, our country, indeed our people, uh, has a discrete starting point, a singular moment in time when it was founded and when its founding was expressly defended. That moment was July 4th when the Declaration of Independence was approved and announced to the public. Today, while all Americans have heard of the Declaration, all too few have read more than its second sentence. Yet the Declaration shows that the natural rights foundation of the American shows the natural rights foundation of the American Revolution and provides important information about what the founders believe makes a constitution or government legitimate. The Declaration was considered to be a legal document by which the revolutionaries justified their actions and explained why they were not truly traitors. 
to justify a revolution, it was not thought to be enough that officials of the government of England, the parliament, or even the sovereign himself had violated the rights of the people. No government is perfect. All governments violate rights. This was well known. So the Americans had to allege more than a mere violation of their rights. They had to allege nothing short of a criminal conspiracy to violate their rights systematically. Hence the famous reference in the Declaration to a long train of abuses and usurpations, usurpations and the list of such abuses that followed the, original, the first two paragraphs. But before this list of particular grievances come two paragraphs, two paragraphs succinctly describing the political theory on which the new polity was to be founded. To appreciate all that's packed into these two paragraphs, it's useful, useful to break down the Declaration into some of its key claims. So why don't we open up to the Declaration and look at the very first sentence and the Cato Constitution, in addition to adding the word liberty randomly throughout the Constitution, that's what makes it the Cato Constitution, um, uh, also includes um, a copy of the Declaration, which is handy to have. All right, let's take um, the first sentence of the Declaration. Uh, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Now, this first sentence is often forgotten. It asserts that Americans as a whole, not as members of their respective colonies, that's interesting, are a distinct people. And to, to dissolve the political bands revokes the social compact that existed between the Americans and the rest of the people of the British Commonwealth, reinstates the state of nature between Americans and the government of Great Britain, and makes the laws of nature the standard by which this dissolution and whatever government is to follow are judged. So the Americans were now, the state of nature was not entirely hypothetical to them. They were now in a state of nature relative to Great Britain. Maybe not with respect to each other, but relative to Great Britain. These laws of nature are based on the regularities found in nature and are discoverable by reason. As Reverend Eliza Goodrich of Connecticut later explained in an election sermon delivered on the eve of the Philadelphia Constitutional Convention, election sermons were things that, that ministers gave to public officials before they started their official duties as legislatures or in the case of the Philadelphia Convention as delegates to the convention, Eliza Goodrich, whose son went on to be a congressman, gave such a lecture. It's very, very interesting. I'm going to quote it somewhat extensively because of how he understands natural law and natural rights. It's very, very uh, illuminating to us today. Here's what Goodrich writes, uh, what he said. Uh, the principles of society are the laws which Almighty God has established in the moral world and made necessary to be observed by mankind in order to promote their true happiness in their transactions and their intercourse. These laws, he said, may be considered as principles in respect of their fixedness and operation, and by knowing them, quote, we discover the rules of conduct which direct mankind to the highest perfection and supreme happiness of their nature. They are as fixed and unchangeable as the laws which operate in the natural world, and that's the part I want to emphasize. And then he goes on, human art, in order to produce certain effects, must conform to the principles and laws which the Almighty has, uh, Creator has established in the natural world. 
Now, these are natural laws that govern every human endeavor, not just politics. It's something that we forget. They undergird what may be called, and what my good friend George Smith uh, has called, normative disciplines. And by which I mean those bodies of knowledge that guide human conduct, bodies of knowledge that tell us how we ought to act if we wish to achieve our goals. So it's useful to distinguish between normative disciplines, or I should say between descriptive disciplines, sciences that just describe the way things are, economics, uh, biology, geography, physics. Those are disciplines. They're very important, but they don't tell us what to do. They don't guide our conduct. They're descriptive. Then there are normative disciplines, and there are a lot of them. Um, for example, uh, medicine is a normative discipline. If you want to make people well, you should follow these principles. Architecture is a normative discipline. If you want to have a building that functions, you should obey these principles. Um, engineering is a normative discipline. If you want, uh, um, if you want uh, to build a bridge that will stand and not collapse, you should follow these principles. These are all normative disciplines because they tell you how you ought to behave if you want to achieve your goals. They're not merely descriptive. They may be, in some respects, based on descriptive disciplines like sciences, de descriptive sciences. It could be. But in fact, many of these disciplines develop without any scientific knowledge through trial and error and practice. And later on, science may come in and explain, well, what is the basis for these practices? But the practices that can develop independently. So Goodrich, in explaining natural law, um, natural law is the, under, the, is the regularity or order that underpins these normative disciplines, all of them, not just politics, not just law but also manufacturing, um, I'm sorry, uh, agriculture and engineering. Um, Goodrich offers the example himself of agriculture, engineering, and architecture. That's what he uses. Here's what he says. He, knew, he who neglects the cultivation of the field and the proper time of sowing may not expect a harvest. He who would assist mankind in raising weights and overcoming obstacles depends on certain rules derived from the knowledge of mechanical principles applied to the construction of machines in order to give the most useful effect to the smallest force. And every builder should well understand the best position of firmness and strength when he is about to erect an edifice. So what, what Goodrich's point here is, is to ignore these fundamental principles is nothing short of denying reality. Like jumping off a roof, imagining that you can fly. As Goodrich puts it, quote, for he who attempts these things on other principles than those of nature attempts to make a new world and his aim will prove absurd and his labor lost. By making a new world, Goodrich means denying the nature of the world that we live in. He concludes, so it's like you're just imagining the world is different than it really is, and you're living in that world. But then if you try to do that, things aren't going to work out for you because of the underlying nature of the world we live in. He concludes, no more can mankind be conducted to happiness or civil societies united and enjoy peace and prosperity without observing the moral principles and connections with which the almighty creator has established for the government of the moral world. Now, I'm going to come back to this when I ask, in the second half of this lecture, when I ask, is the Declaration right? Now I'm just trying to say what the Declaration says. And then I'm going to come back later to this idea of natural law and natural rights to, argue, to discuss whether the Declaration is correct in having said what it does. Now, after referring to these laws of nature, the Declaration goes on to assert the existence of natural rights uh, as part of the law of nature, part of it, 
And so let's look at the next sentence of the Declaration. This is the most famous one. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We all know this one. This is the one everybody knows, except maybe the people that they interview on the street uh, for, to show how much they know about stuff. Jay Leno or uh, Jesse Waters or somebody uh, who does these things, you know, it's like makes us feel really bad. All right, so anyway, this is the most famous line of the Declaration. On the one hand, this will become a great embarrassment to the people who permitted slavery, although I should add that only part of the country permitted slavery. The other part of the country immediately abolished it, almost immediately. On the other hand, making public claims like this has consequences, and that's why people make claims like this publicly, to commit themselves to it, even if they're not prepared to practice it right away, to be held account to account. This promise will provide the heart of the abolitionist case uh, in the 19th century against slavery, which is why um, late defenders of slavery eventually came to reject the Declaration as a farrago of nonsense, they called it, because it asserted the equality of human beings. So what are unalienable or more commonly in, inalienable rights? No one really knows exactly why it says unalienable and not inalienable. Inalienable was the common phrase at the time. It was in early drafts of the Declaration. It said inalienable, and later on when it went to the printer or someplace between writing it and voting on it and sending it to the printer, it became unalienable. Somebody liked that phrase better. Other than that, it means the same as inalienable. What is an inalienable right? Um, inalienable rights are those you cannot give up even if you want to, and consent to, because they're inalienable. You can't give them up. They are part of you. Unlike other rights, alienable rights, that you can agree to transfer or to waive. All right, the right to your car, the right to your house. You can agree to transfer or waive those. What's a, an example of a right that, you might not, that might not be alienable? The right to acquire property as opposed to any particular piece of property. The right to acquire property might be inalienable for reasons that we'll talk about. Okay, um, why did the founders make this claim about inalienable rights? Why were they talking about these rights being inalienable? The, the founders wanted to counter England's claim that by accepting colonial governance, the colonists had waived or alienated their rights. It was in a tacit consent argument that England made. That means the founders denied they had done this, but in addition to denying they'd done this, they basically also, they also asserted the existence of these rights being inalienable um, because with inalienable rights, you always retain the ability to take them back um, uh, even after you've given them up. So basically, if the rights are inalienable, it wouldn't matter if they had acquiesced to the rule of the crown because they can always change their mind. That's the nature of an inalienable right. They never lose them even if they consented to them. Now, the de Declaration famously refers to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That was Jefferson's phraseology. The standard trilogy throughout the period, however, was life, liberty, and property. For example, the Declaration and Resolves of the First Continental Congress in 1774, this was two years before the Declaration, asserted that, quote, the inhabitants of the English colonies in North America, by the immutable laws of nature, the principles of the English Constitution and the several charters of compact have the following rights, quote, that they are entitled to life, liberty, and property, and that they have never ceded to any foreign power, whatever, a right to dispose of either without their consent, unquote. Life, liberty, and property 
was more or less the standard formulation, or as the influential British political theorist John Locke said, no one ought to harm another in his life, health, liberty, or possessions. Another formulation. However, the most common, commonly repeated formulation was found in the Virginia Declaration of Rights, um, drafted in uh, May of 1776, just before Jefferson started to work on the Declaration. And here's what George Mason, who drafted this Bill of Rights, uh, wrote. George Mason University is named after him. All men are by nature equally free and independent and have certain inherent rights, namely the enjoyment of life and liberty with the means of acquiring and possessing property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. Let me say that last part again, what, what those rights are, according to Mason. The enjoyment of life and liberty with the means of acquiring and possessing property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. Somewhat more comprehensive list of rights. In fact, Madison had, I mean, sorry, Jefferson had, when he wrote and when he drafted the, bill, uh, the declaration, and he only did so in a couple of days. He had a few weeks to do it, but he was very, very busy. He was on a million committees, and they had lots of reports they had to do. And so he ultimately ended up having to cram and do it. You know, students in the room will understand how this works. He ended up having to cram this. And not only that, but he sort of borrowed from other documents that had already existed. Uh, he had two documents in front of him. One was his own draft of a Virginia constitution, a Virginia petition uh, 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 of remonstrance. But he also had a draft of Mason's declar uh, uh, Bill of, um, Declaration of Rights in front of him. And in those days, it wasn't considered plagiarism to borrow things from well-known sources and from other sources. In fact, it was considered, that's the reason why students had to memorize all of these texts, because then they could recite them at the drop of a hat, and then they could twist them and modify them. And it was the twisting and modifying and making them uh, uh, different, but same, that was considered to be the creative act even though you were borrowing from other people. So he borrowed, he had in front of him this uh, Virginia Declaration of Rights by Mason, and he truncated it, he condensed it down to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness from what Mason had said, life and liberty with the means of acquiring and possessing property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. I should say, though, that it was Mason, not Jefferson's formulation, that became the canonical one in the states. At least five states, maybe six, picked this up and put it in their state constitutions, and this very language, which of Masons was used by the Massachusetts Supreme Court to abolish slavery in Massachusetts because they said slavery was inconsistent with this language that Mason had drafted. Um, so that was the, and then ultimately that became a formulation that was carried down to explain what the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States were. So Mason's formulation in some respects was more influential than Jefferson's. All right, let's move on to the next sentence of the Declaration. To secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. I just want to stop there for a minute. Um, this, is an over, this is an overlooked phrase, phrase. It's an overlooked passage of the Declaration, which expresses the underlying central, the central, lying, central underlying assumption of the Constitution, the assumption of individual natural rights as the purpose of government. It, a statement identifies the ultimate end or purpose of governments as securing the natural rights, which the previous sentence affirms is the measure against which all governments, whether of Great Britain or the United States, will be judged. Look at that sentence again. That to secure these rights, government, which rights? The rights that were referred to in the previous sentence. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And what kinds of rights are those? In addition to being unalienable and natural, they are individual rights. It is individuals 
who have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, not groups, not majorities, not states, individuals. So what the Declaration says it, it is the first duty of government, the first purpose of government. In fact, it says in this place it's the only purpose of government. To secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. And the other thing that I'm going to emphasize, I think I'll emphasize a little later, we'll see if we have time, is that governments are not equated with the people here. They, governments are a subset of the people. Um, and the next part of the sentence explains a little bit more about that. It says, deriving their just powers, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Now, there's a, there's a, there's a phrase in there that is, I think, highly overlooked. And that is the phrase, just powers. Not all power, not any power from the consent of the governed, but only the just powers can they be derived from the consent of the governed. All right, so today there's a tendency to focus entirely on this portion of this sentence to the exclusion of the first part that references the securing of our natural rights. But we should recognize that both parts are there and differ in their meaning, and there's a tension between them. There's a tension between the first part of the sentence and the second part of the sentence. Now, natural rights are thought to exist apart from any consent of others. We have them. They're inherent in us. They're called, another synonym for natural rights that was widely used were inherent rights. In, they inhere in the individual as an individual. They, um, but claims about rights, what these rights are, are highly disputed. Even philosophers disagree about their nature and extent. So how practical is it... Um, to trump the consent of the governed by claims of rights when rights are um, so uncertain. For this reason, it's sometimes thought that we should just basically go with the consent of the governed. How do people, like example, how do you vote? If you vote, that gives you the consent, and if the consent, that will tell you what's right or wrong. And rights claims are more uncertain and may be problematic to overcome an election or a vote of some kind, the consent of the governed. Um, so is it not better to emphasize the consent of the governed part, where we just consent to government and we are asked to vote and we vote on things, than the rights part, which are uncertain? But notice that, at least in principle, people can consent to anything, unless you believe in unalienable rights. People can consent to anything. For example, um, no one can justly punch another person in the face. We know that. But anyone can consent to be in a boxing match in which they allow themselves to be punched in the face. Rape is a crime, but people can consent to sexual relations with other people. So if consent is all you have, the consent of the governed is all you have, and you, don't, and you forget about the rights part, then an argument can be made that you've consented to anything, that the people have consented to anything. They can consent to anything. They consent to be raped. They can consent to be beaten in the face. They can consent to have their property taken away from them. You can consent to anything. What makes an unalienable right, by the way, unalienable is you can change your mind. You can agree to box in a match, but then if you don't want to go through with it, you can change your mind and they can't throw you in the ring and say, oh, you agreed to it, you consented to it, because it's unalienable. But as long as you get into the ring voluntarily, then you can't accuse the other person of battery. You've consented to it. Now, if consent is all we have, the people can, and it turns out it's like, it's either tacit consent or majoritarian consent, because the only kind of consent you have is majority vote. Um, then the people could be said to have consented to anything, and that is a recipe for tyranny, actually. So the second half of the sentence, without the first half of the sentence, 
is actually a very dangerous thing standing alone. That's why it's great that they were both put together. In fact, the problem, another problem with the second half of the sentence standing alone is that it's, we focus oftentimes on how rights are uncertain, but the truth is consent is also very uncertain. What constitutes consent? We're always debating, libertarians are always debating with each other about what our rights are and where they come from, but we don't spend as much time talking about what consent is and where it comes from. Is the express consent of each and every citizen what's required of consent? That's very impractical. You can't get unanimous consent to anything, hardly. Um, although I do think that I should just qualify this because I sort of threw that out there off script. There are a lot of unanimous consent institutions in this world that, we go, that go unrecognized. Cato University is a unanimous consent institution. Every one of you has agreed to be here, every single one of you. So not by majority, you were not drafted here by a majority vote of a polity. Every one of you agreed to be here and be bound by these rules or you leave. We all be belong to many, many unanimous consent institutions. Um, but the polity as a whole cannot be a unanimous consent institution. Um, so what is consent? Is it the failure to leave the country? If by failing to leave the country have you consented? Uh, would that mean that anybody who stays in a country has consented to anything that happens to them? When the, Jews didn't, when the Jews didn't flee Germany, they consented to everything that happened to them after that? We don't believe that. Does the consent of the majority override that of a minority? In what sense has the individual consented to be restricted by a law um, that's enacted by a mere handful of other, uh, other people called legislatures? When did, you when did you agree or when did you consent to be governed by the 535 people that are in that building not just a few blocks away from here, 535 people, they pass laws. When did you consent to that? When you voted for somebody? When you voted against that person? When you refused to vote? When you didn't leave the country? You can see that consent itself is a problematic concept. Not, it's not insolubly problematic, maybe, but it's not easy. It's, I don't think it's any easier to solve the consent part of the sentence than it is to solve the rights part of the sentence. They're both problematic. We just focus on one because it just seems easier to say, well, we vote, majority rule, now we know what consent is. Now, in practice, when it comes to rights versus consent, people tend to favor one of these concepts over the other, which leads them to stress one part of the sentence of the declaration over the other part. The fact that rights can be uncertain and disputed leads some to emphasize the consent part of the sentence and legitimacy of, partly, uh, of popularly enacted legislation. But the fact that there is never unanimous consent to any particular law or even to government itself leads others to emphasize, and particularly libertarians, the rights part of the sentence and, legi and the legitimacy, for example, of judges protecting the fundamental or human rights of individuals and minorities. But we need to take both parts of this sentence seriously. And if we do, I think they can be reconciled in a number of ways. But the most obvious way they can is by distinguishing between the ultimate end or purpose of any legitimate government, which is the first half of the sentence. That's what's identified. What is the ultimate end or purpose of any legitimate governance? With the second part of the sentence, which is how any particular government gains jurisdiction to rule. That's a separate question. One is the purpose of government, and the other is how does a particular government come to be the one that actually is in effect today. And in that sense, their consent might make you know, an operational difference. So for example, right now we live under the Constitution of the United States. We do not live under the Confederate Constitution. 
there is a Confederate Constitution that was written one. You can go read what it says. You can figure out what its original meaning is. You can interpret it. You can do everything you want with it, but it's not the operative law today. What makes one the law and not the law? You could say it is the consent or, at the very minimum, the acquiescence of the people to a particular regime being in effect. But acquiescence doesn't legitimate the regime. It simply establishes it that it is the regime. It is the regime, and then it's only legitimate if it satisfies the first half of the sentence, which is that it secures the rights of the people. In that sense, one has to do with which regime you live under, and the other one has to do with what that regime must be in order to be legitimate. Now, I address this tension um, at greater length um, in um, uh, the book, in my new book, Our Republican Constitution. Uh, but in the balance of this lecture, I'm just going to simply defend the Declaration's claim that the ultimate purpose of government is to secure the inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But before I turn to that, I want to cover one last passage of the Declaration. So let's turn to the next passage. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its power in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Now, again, this passage restates the end of government. That is human safety and happiness, individual human safety and happiness and identifies the form of government as simply a means to that end. It's not an end in itself. It's not a form of expression. It's a means to the end of securing human um, safety and happiness. Therefore, for this reason, the people have a right to alter and abolish any form of government when it becomes destructive of these ends. As the Americans declared the British government to be in the list of fo that followed, which substantiated the claim that this government has now become destructive to these ends. So let me sum up now. The political theory announced in the Declaration of Independence can be summed up in the following propositions. In fact, it can be summed up in one sentence, and that is this. First come rights, then comes government. First come rights, then comes government. And so here's some tenets that fall out of that. The rights of individuals do not originate with any government, but pre-exist its formation. First comes rights, then comes government. The protection of these rights is the first duty of government. To secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. Even after government is formed, these rights become, provide a standard by which its performance is measured, and in extreme cases, its systematic Failure to protect rights or its systematic violation of rights can justify its altered, alteration or abolition. Remember, government was up and running. Those rights did not disappear. They provided the basis for or the justification for overthrowing or renouncing or getting away from English rule. That's what that last sentence I just read you said. So it's not like the rights disappeared once civil society had gotten started. They still existed as a measure of that government and then if the government fails to live up to that measure, it can be gone away with. Finally, at least some of these rights are so fundamental that they are inalienable, meaning they are so intimately connected to one's nature as a human being that they cannot be transferred to another, even if one, even if one consents to do so. Okay, now this is all very powerful stuff. At, these, at the founding, these ideas were considered so obviously true as to be considered self-evident. 
we hold these truths to be self-evident. However, today the idea of natural rights is obscure and controversial. Oftentimes when the idea comes up, it is deemed to be archaic. Moreover, the discussion of, uh, by many of natural rights, as reflected in the Declaration's claim that such rights are endowed by their, cre- by their creator, leads many to characterize natural rights as religiously based rather than secular. In fact, if you talk to a lot of people on the street, and maybe some people in this room, you ask, what's a natural right? And they might say, well, it's a right given by God. So they immediately tie natural rights to a creator. Um, So it's useful for us today to understand natural rights the way the founding generation that wrote and ratified the Bill of Rights, for example, understood them. And the explanation I gave by Goodrich, by Eliza Goodrich, who was in fact a minister, shows that these laws of nature are based on regularities of nature. That's what they're based on, the regularities of nature. He who would lift weights and violates these principles of nature would basically see their labor lost, create a new world and see their labor lost. The almighty creator is the source of nature's order. In other words, we don't have our rights by, by divine command from God. We have our rights because the rights are inhere in the nature of the world we live in, just like the principles of medicine inhere in the nature of the world in which we live in. And God was thought to be the source of an orderly world. God created the world, and God created order in the world. And it's the order on which these human rights are based. St. Thomas Aquinas, who no one could, could, could accuse of being kind of a squish on religion, um, He distinguished between three forms of law, divine law, natural law, and human law. Divine law and natural law were not the same thing. Divine law, we understand, how did you know, and the way you distinguish between the kinds of law is how you discover them, how you know what their substance is. You know divine law by revelation. God reveals it to you because it's a command. You know natural law, well, you know human law by promulgation. It's announced, it's advertised. That's how you know what human law is. How about natural law? Natural law, based on the regularities of the world, you know natural law based on reason. You think it out. You think it through. You discover it. That's Aquinas. Um, but were the... Found, what, I mean, I was, one last quote before I move on, and that is there's a quote by... Um, there's a, there's a, statement, a famous statement by Hugo Grotius, who was a, a Dutch natural rights thinker um, and an international law theorist. And he affirmed something that at the time he said this would actually bordering on something that he could have been burned for, for saying. But he he tried to say it carefully. But even if you said it carefully, if you were in the wrong place at the wrong time, you could be punished for for this sentence. He said, what we have been saying, and about the existence of natural uh, law of justice, what he was referred to as the natural law of justice, would have a degree of validity, even if we were to concede what cannot be conceded without the utmost wickedness, that there is no God or that the affairs of men are of no concern to him. So he denies it, but you're not even, in those days, you weren't even supposed to suggest by denying there is no God, by saying that, there, you know, that, that. But even so, he says, look, what we would say about natural law would have some validity even if there was no God. Or he was the sort of God that deists believe in, which basically don't have anything to do with. They're not, he's not an interventionist God. He doesn't actually affect what happens here. But were the founding generations right to believe in natural rights? And how do we identify these rights? In what sense can we say that they precede government? 
Now, I've presented a fuller defense of natural rights in the book that Tom held up for you, The Structure of Liberty, a new edition of which is available on sale here at Cato University. Just came out last summer with a long uh, new uh, afterward. Uh, but here I'm going to merely summarize the analysis that's presented at greater length in that book. And I think um, it's useful to distinguish between natural law and natural rights in this respect. So beginning with the former, natural law. The idea of natural law is mysterious today. We're accustomed to thinking of law as the command of a legislature or perhaps the command of a government official or a judge that's enforced by government. A natural law, whatever it may be, that was not incorporated into a command enforceable by government hardly seems worth the paper that it isn't written on. How can, a, how can there be a law in any meaningful sense in the absence of government recognition and enforcement? That's the question. But going back again to Goodrich, when we think of the disciplines of engineering and architecture, the idea of natural law is not so mysterious. For example, engineers reason that given force that gravity exerts on a building, if we want a building that will enable persons to live or work inside, then we, had, we, we need to provide a foundation, walls and roof of certain strengths. Given the nature of the world, if you want to accomplish certain objection, objectives, then you better follow these principles. That's the nature of engineering. Given the nature of the world and human beings, if you want to accomplish certain objectives, keeping a building up, then you would best follow certain principles. The principles of engineering, though formulated by human beings, they're all of human origin, are not a product of human will. They can't be whatever we wish them to be. We make them up, we devise them, but they're not unlimited. They, we can't just devise anything we want. The physical, of, the physical law of gravity leads to the following natural law injunction for human action. Given that gravity will cause us to fall rapidly, if we want to live and be happy, we, should, we had better not jump off tall buildings. That is a formulation, that is a precept that human beings make up. But it's based on reality. It's not like we can say, oh, well, we made that up. Let's make up the one that says you can jump off tall buildings. Well, wait a second, that's not going to work. These principles must come to grips with the nature of human beings and the world in which humans live. And they operate whether or not they are recognized or enforced by any government. They are not a product of government, and they operate whether government denies them or accepts them. And although they are never perfectly precise and always subject to incremental improvements and sometimes even breakthroughs, they are far from arbitrary. We violate these principles at our peril. That's why we formulate them, to avoid the peril. Unlike the physical sciences, which are merely or purely descriptive, the disciplines of engineering and agriculture are normative, as I said before. They instruct us how we ought to act. Given the nature of human beings and the world in which we live um, and the purpose at hand, you should act the following ways. Nor need one be an engineer or an architect to generate or formulate similar natural law normative principles. For example, um, I already gave the example of the, you shouldn't jump off tall buildings. You don't need to be an engineer or an architect to figure that one out. Now, could the principles of society that Goodrich was talking about and that we're talking about here be the same as the natural laws that I just talked about from engineering and architecture? It, and it would go something like this. If we want persons to be able to pursue happiness while living in society with others, 
then they had best adopt and respect a social structure that reflects these principles. That's the more general, abstract way of saying it. Given the nature of human beings and the world in which we find ourselves, if you want a society in which people can pursue happiness while living in close proximity to each other, where their actions can affect other people, then you best respect certain basic principles. Now, it may be that these principles may be harder to ascertain than engineering or architectural principles are. Maybe not, though. They could be. They may not be. And this may be so because human beings are actually very, very complicated. They're very complex, and partly because we have individual will or desire. We don't operate the way machines do. We don't operate the way billiard balls do. We have our, we're sort of inner, inner, inwardly self-directed, and that makes us more complicated. But the mere existence of complications or controversy does not render these principles non-existent. Nor does the fact that we cannot see, hear, taste, or touch them because I know people like to say, well, you know, show me where the natural law is. If you believe in natural law, show me where it is. If you believe in natural rights, show me where they are. I mean, we cannot see, hear, taste, or touch principles of engineering or architecture either. Both sets of principles or laws are humanly constructed concepts that we use to predict and make our way in the world that we know. So when somebody says, well, show me where natural law is, is it in the dirt? And as a way of refuting it, I say, well, show me where the principles of medicine are. If, if you open up your body, will you find them there? You wouldn't even think to make that objection, would you? Where are the principles of medicine? Well, they're of human invention. They're of human design. We evolve them, but they're not arbitrary. They're not anything we want. They're based on the body, the way the body works, but they're not found in the body. And the same thing is true with natural laws that govern society. They're based on the way things work. They're just not found in the dirt, just like any other principles are not found in the dirt. The, the idea that the world, including world government, is worldly governments is governed by laws or principles that dictate how society ought to be structured in the very same way that natural laws dictate how buildings ought to be built or crops should be planted was well accepted by the Americans at the time of the founding, which is what, I've, what the Declaration establishes. The assumption that first comes rights and then comes government was so universal as to be considered self-evident. Okay. Now, natural law accounts of the principles of society assumes that happiness, peace, and prosperity, the end, remember the way natural law reasoning works is given the nature of human beings in the world in which we find ourselves, if you want to achieve certain ends, then you should adhere to certain principles or means. Well, what is the end? What is the end of society? The end of society that was given by Eliza Goodrich, by Thomas Jefferson, by George Mason, was the end of um, human happiness and prosperity. Happiness, peace, and prosperity was actually the phrase used by Goodrich. That's the end. Now, that's an assumption that that's what we should be having, a, ha a society in which happiness is peace and prosperity. The natural law analysis doesn't prove that's what we should have. That natural law analysis says if you want to have a society like that, then you ought to do it this way. But again, this is very similar to agriculture, engineering, and architectural, because those are disciplines that are also only based on the assumption that human existence and happiness are worthwhile. If you want to make somebody well, then you ought to respect principles of medicine. Principles of medicine don't tell you you must make people well. They don't tell you why you should want to make people well. They only tell you that if you want to, this is how you do it. 
And that's maybe the only thing that natural law or natural rights actually tells you. If you want a society in which people can pursue happiness, peace, and prosperity while living in close proximity to other, they ought to respect these basic fundamental rights, whatever they may be, which I'm not getting into in detail here, but the right, life, liberty, and property is a pretty, or life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are a pretty good summary of what those rights are. Now, if you want to build buildings and a bridge that collapse, then feel free to ignore natural law. If you want to build a building or bridges that don't collapse, then you have to follow them. It's obligatory. It's an ought. But how do you organize a government that protects these fundamental rights from domestic and foreign threats, while not at the same time itself posing the greatest threat to these very rights of the people? The founders of the United States attempted to accomplish this by means of a written constitution, this written constitution. But as I will explain tomorrow, there, has long been two there have long been two conflicting visions of the Constitution based on two conflicting conceptions of popular sovereignty, what I call the Democratic Constitution and the Republican Constitution. Tomorrow, I'm going to explain the difference between these two conceptions of popular sovereignty and these two conceptions of constitutionalism and why that makes so much difference to how the Constitution is interpreted today and, what the prop and most importantly, what the proper role of judges are in enforcing the Constitution. But for now, we have a half hour to discuss the Declaration of Independence and the rights retained by the people. Thank you. So I'm told that, I guess like all the other lecture, all the other sessions, you have to line up at the microphone uh, at the aisle if you want to ask a question. Yes, ma'am. Um, do you believe that executive orders go against the Declaration's, um, you know, recitement of consent of the governed, since they bypass our elected officials essentially in often creating law? That's an um, interesting question. Um, executive orders, I mean, questions that are about the Constitution are. Sometime, somewhat best answered tomorrow, asked tomorrow when I talk about the Constitution. But I will say this, uh, executive orders are a routine part of the executive administering the executive branch of the government. They have, the president has to issue orders to the people that work for him or her um, and tell them what to do. That's what an executive order is supposed to do. Um, it just cannot take the place. It cannot be so broad and extensive as to take the place of a law because making of laws is delegated to the legislature. So it, we don't even have to get into the consent of the governed here because, in fact, if there is consent of the governed, it's consented to, there's a consent if there is, and I'm saying if. There's a consent to the whole system, in, which includes legislatures, and the legislature is divided between a House and a Senate, then you've got a president with an electoral college, and then you've got courts. It's the whole system that we have that operates. So executive orders within proper bounds are absolutely essential. But beyond those bounds, the president can start to intrude into the areas of power that have actually been given to other branches of government under our system. Uh, I have heard that some of the founding Could you identify, identify yourself? I'd just like to know who I'm talking okay. to. So I'm Sean Hernandez. I'm a PhD student in economics. Thank you, Sean. And uh, some of the founding fathers were friends with Adam Smith, as I heard on Econ Talk with Russ Roberts. And uh, Adam Smith uh, you know, was alive at the time. And uh, the founding fathers, when they say they can, you can provide new guards for your future security after you throw off the despots, it seems to 
engage in my understanding of government, which is a service provider bundling dispute resolution and security services. But why do you think that all these people failed to recognize that those things could be a potentially marketable service? Uh, who are the, these people? Like the Founding Fathers and Adam Smith. Um, why, did, why did they fail to recognize it? Probably for the same reason that people today fail to recognize it. I mean, um, we're, most people today aren't any smarter and, or, I mean, any more, smart, any more um, aware of these alternatives than we are today. The structure of liberty, I actually have an entire last part of the book called about polycentric legal order, about how law can be provided competitively. Uh, but this is, um, it's a pretty far out idea. Um, and it was just kind of an assumption to them. It's, it seemed evident. You know, it's, I, I honestly don't know what's in their head in respect to this, but it would seem to me it's always, you know, there, there had been government for as long as they could remember. Um, and then the question is, how do you make the government that exists more responsive and, and more protective of individual rights? And it's kind of the way that people feel today. Thank you. I yes. was wondering if you could... Uh, and, and you are? Oh. My name is Daniel Kendrick. I'm one of the interns at the Cato Institute this Great. year. Uh, I was wondering if you could clarify what you think the relation is between protecting rights is what makes government legitimate and the consent of, and consent of the government is what makes it legitimate. Because it seems to me, I mean, unless you buy the concepts of tacit consent or you know collective consent, you don't really have consent uh, of, of the governed. So you know, either you have to conclude that government is not legitimate or it's legitimate for some reason that doesn't really have anything to do with consent and consent is consent of the majority is sort of a convenient way of not having a government that's too tyrannical. Right. I actually agree with the last part of your sentence. I don't know if you know that or not, but I mean, in, in, I, I hate to keep mentioning books I've written, uh, but there is another, <laughs> there is another book I've I wrote called Restoring the Lost Constitution. Uh, and the first part of that book is all about constitutional legitimacy. What is it that makes a constitution legitimate? And I deny the consent of the government that the, the consent of the government is, exists in order to make constitutions legitimate. Um, and I didn't, and, and this was somewhat of a reluctant thing I had to put in the front of the book because it, it's not the kind of thing you want to put in the beginning of your book. It's going to turn off a lot of readers who believe in consent of the governed. So I did it because I felt it was right, even though I knew that it wasn't great for the book to do it. So I agree with that. So in the book, what I argue makes a, con a government legitimate, if anything does, and that is whether it is likely to protect the rights of the individual, such that when a law is passed, it deserves the benefit of the doubt. The way that law was made gives it the benefit of the doubt that it's rights respecting. It doesn't have to be perfect, just gets the benefit of the doubt. And here's an analogy that I use to describe that. You go to the store, you buy meat. You take the meat home, you cook it up. You don't test it to make sure that it's not doesn't have disease in it. You don't act. You give that meat the benefit of the doubt. And by and and what is it that you're really giving the benefit of the doubt? The process that made the meat. That's what you're giving the benefit of the doubt to. You're assuming that if it was all if it was all done right. I was about to say if it was all kosher, but it doesn't always have to be kosher. <laughs> if it was if, if it was all done right, um, then it's going to be okay to eat. Chances are, you're, it's worth a bet, right? And I think the same thing would be true with lawmaking. Law, and I use the meat or sausage analogy because people say you don't want to know how either laws or sausages are made because you don't want to know what goes in a sausage. You won't be able to eat it if you really knew what was in there. And you don't want to know how laws are made. This is the old uh, Bismarck claim. The way laws are made ought to be made in such a way as, as that they're likely to be wholesome. Like the way meat is, uh, sausage is made, it's likely to be wholesome. And if, it, if you have a system that makes laws that way and they deserve the benefit of the doubt, then that system is legitimate wholly apart from the consent of the governed. 
And then the consent of the governed, what elections do, election is part of the process of checking the power of government to ensure that it is more likely to be respecting rights than not. And so within our system, that's where, that's where, that's where majoritarian uh, checks come in. And in a way, I will talk about, a bit about this tomorrow, because uh, I think that's the premise that underlies a Republican constitution as opposed to a Democratic constitution. Democratic constitution is based on majorities. Republican constitution is based on the protection of rights. So I basically agree with you. One last thing. I really have gone on way too long. But one last thing. In recent years, um, I discovered that there, at the founding time, uh, at the founding period, they had a concept that they utilized to get around this problem, which is very interesting. And it's in the, it's the concept called presumed consent. And in, my, in the new book, I talk about this idea of presumed consent. And what the founders said was, I, th well, I guess I don't have any quotes in this talk. I can't read you one. And also judges said is that they asked whether if somebody, if government claimed a particular power and that was not an enumerated power, an inherent power of some kind, then what the judges or people would say is, can it be presumed, since we don't ever ask the people for their consent, can it be presumed that a free people would have consented to such a power? And if the answer is no, then government doesn't have it. So they asked whether the people could be presumed. For example, can you be the people be presumed to have given up their rights without asking them? No, it can't be. So therefore, government can't claim that. As government, based on the consent of the government, cannot claim the power to violate your rights because it cannot be presumed that a people who were never asked to consent have consented to that. That is a very interesting way around the problem of consent that makes it entirely consistent with rights. And that is a concept that was quite operational at the time of the founding. Great question. Yes. Hi, um, I'm Evan Lynette. I'm a student at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And so um, you mentioned George Mason, who father of the Bill of Rights and one of my uh, favorite founding fathers. Uh, could you explain why? He was the father of the Virginia Declaration of Rights. James Madison was the father of the Bill of Rights. Just so we know. We keep, <laughs> we keep our bills of rights straight. Okay. Um, could you explain why he refused to sign the United States Constitution? Um, well, the, one of the reasons he gave is that there was no Bill of Rights. So, and then Madison eventually turned, you know, uh, through great persistence, gets a, the First Amendment's passed. So that was part of the reason that he gave for that. Um, I'm trying to remember. Does anybody remember if he had any other objections besides? That's one of the ones he gave. I think he was, you know, he was, he, like many of the founding generation, were very concerned about creating a strong central national government and somewhat distrustful of strong central national governments. Um, and, and so there were a lot of anti-federalists who were against the Constitution because they were very suspicious that it was going to be too strong and centralized a government. And in many respects, their fears have turned out to be true. Uh, much, much of what the anti-federalists said about the Constitution has turned out to be right. Um, and so it's, it's entirely reasonable that they would have that fear. But the one thing that you shouldn't think is that they were all really happy with the way things were. I mean, what brought George Mason to the Philadelphia Convention in the first place, along with other people like who, who, who refused to sign the Constitution, was a belief that things were really bad. Tomorrow I'll explain a little bit about what they thought was bad um, uh, in the state governments. But they all agreed things were really bad and we needed an improvement, but they weren't quite sure whether this government uh, had enough checks within it to protect the rights of the people, and he was one of those. Yes, sir. Hi, my name is Devin Watkins. Um, I'm Devin, I know you. I mean, I don't know you. I've never met you before. <laughs> Devin just recently contributed to a debate that was held online involving a University of Illinois law professor named Kurt Lash, 
uh, who I have, who has been a protagonist or antagonist of mine for many years, <laughs> um, uh, and oh, who is a friend of mine. But we we are on the opposite sides of the Ninth Amendment, we're the opposite side of the Privileged Immunities Clause. And Kurt just wrote a um, very negative review of a great book I highly recommend to you called Damon, by Damon Root called Overruled. It's the story of how conservatives and libertarians are kind of fighting over the Constitution these days. And um, Devin. Uh, posted on, was it Online Law of Liberty? What was the name of the uh, website? Uh, Law and Liberty, uh, Library of Law and Liberty. Right. Devin takes on uh, Kurt Lash, uh, this, this chaired professor from the University of Illinois, uh, on, uh, on Kurt's claim on privileges or immunities and dug up a piece of uh, uh, evidence that I hadn't seen before, Devin, uh, mm-hmm. which was the, and I, that's why I wanted to give you, I didn't even know who Devin was. It, it was in, his name in a comment section. I didn't know he worked at Cato. <laughs> um, and I said, you know, I wanted to give him credit because he found this, uh, this report by John Bingham as, as to what the meaning of the 14th and 15th Amendment meant, uh, which I think is highly inconvenient for Kurt. Um, uh, and um, I will certainly rely on that in the future. So, Devin, welcome. Nice to meet you in, fer- in person. Thank you for that. Um, I had a qu- My question to you was uh, what your thoughts were on the scope of the pursuit of happiness because George... By Mason- the way, before you... I'm sorry to interrupt. Tell me what you do, Devin. What's your background besides the fact that you intern here? Uh, so in addition to interning here, I'm a rising 3L at George Mason Law School. Um, so just okay, trying great. to learn Sorry. the law. Sorry, <laughs> I, I shouldn't be stepping on your question. So ask it again. My please. question to you was on the scope of the pursuit of happiness. I know uh, George Mason, when he was writing his Bill of Rights, he had separated the pursuit of happiness from the right to acquire property. Yes. I was wondering if your thoughts were that uh, Thomas Jefferson meant to include that within that pursuit of happiness, or what your broader thoughts are on what kinds of things were included in that right. Um, we don't know exactly why Jefferson altered the formulation he was given, except that he was trying for succinctness. Uh, you know, he made everything shorter and tighter. And he also was working with a committee that further edited things as well. Um, uh, so we, we don't exactly know why he com- compacted it this way. People have suggested that one of the reasons why property was left out is because at that time, slavery was a form of property and the protection of property could be read as a protection of slave property. And so you don't want to get into property at that point. I'm not sure I buy that since uh, Virginia did do it um, and also other states did it. And um, in fact, that language that Mason had with property in it uh, was the basis for Massachusetts Supreme Court holding that slavery was unconstitutional in Massachusetts, which happened, I think it was in uh, 1782 or 1783. Uh, so it was before the Constitution was actually enacted. Massachusetts already held that slavery was unconstitutional under that language. So I'm really not sure. Uh, other than, I mean, one, th- one just guess is that property is a means and happiness is the end. Um, and property is the means to life. Property is the means to liberty. Uh, property is the way in which we actually distinguish liberty from license. And property is the means to happiness. And so maybe that was why it, was, it could be dropped. Um, uh, and while you're just sticking with the ends perhaps. Uh, But I want to emphasize that it was Mason's formulation that became the canonical one, not the declarations. Um, And it was not only in five or six constitutions, but it was used by um, Justice Bushrod Washington, who was George Washington's nephew, when he wrote a famous circuit court opinion called Corfield versus Coriel, which involved the meaning of Article 4, Section 2, which was the privileges and immunities of the United States. We've got our constitutions with us. Let's look that up. Article 4, Section 2, 
I can't give you a page number because I might have a different. What do you have? Each Cato Constitution has somewhat different paginations. In addition to randomly inserting the word liberty, um, <laughs> it also uses different paginations. All right, so here's what the Privileges and Immunities Clause read. The citizens of each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states. So what did that mean? What were those privileges and immunities? It's a very long, complicated story. The most famous definition was provided by Justice Bushrod Washington, George Washington's nephew, uh, in the 1820s in a circuit court case called Corfield versus Coriel. And he, and he has a very long passage, which I have not memorized, so I cannot read it to you. I cannot recite it from memory. But in the core of that passage, he defines rights in the very same way that George Mason did. It's clearly coming from Mason and the other states that put it in their state constitutions. It was the canonical version. He said that's what the privileges and immunities of citizens are in the states. Those rights, the right to, uh, let me get Mason's formulation. I don't want to lose it here. Uh, all, that all men are born free and e uh, free, equally free um, and independent have certain inherent rights, namely the enjoyment of life and liberty, with the means of acquiring and possessing property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. Something very much like that was in Corfield versus Coriel. Now, why do I stress that? Because now, if you turn to the 14th Amendment, so turn to the 14th Amendment in your Cato Constitution. Everybody there? Okay, so the second sentence of the 14th Amendment says, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. So the natural question is, well, what does that mean? And in Congress, numerous times, when asked what the meaning of that phrase was, which was pending in the 14th Amendment, congressman after congressman cited and quoted Corfield versus Coriel. And in the congressional record, there are these long passages from Corfield versus Coriel. So privileges or immunities was thought in part, not entirely, but in part to be privileges and immunities. And, and to these, Jacob Howard, senator from, Mass from Michigan, added, to these should be added these particular privileges that are in the Constitution itself, for example, in the Bill of Rights, in the first eight amendments. The personal guarantees in the Eighth Amendment should be added to the, James, the George Mason version that's in Corfield versus Coriel. So there's a connection there. I've just made a connection for you between George Mason, um, the Privileges and Immunities Clause using Corfield versus Coriel, and then the Privileges or Immunities Clause in the 14th Amendment, uh, which now extends protection to citizens against their own state governments. Because what, what the 14th Amendment added to what had previously existed was the beginning of that sentence, which says, no state shall make or enforce any law. So that's a constitutional restriction on what states can do. Whereas before, the first 10 amendments were, were restrictions on what the federal government could do. Yes. Yeah, so. You I'm, are? I'm Charles Lehman. I'm also a Cato intern. Uh, there are, I think, and no, the second last one. So my question actually also has to do with the Doctrine of Enumerated Rights and the 14th Amendment. Um, so it is, I, I think, all well and good to say, well, there's a certain class of natural rights that people have, and we have a system of law, and we do have a system of law that respects those. But we get pretty fuzzy once we actually start trying to list what those rights are or not list what those rights are, such that 
over the course of the history of our country, the language of rights has been appropriated towards other ends. Uh, the freedom from want, freedom from fear. Very recently I learned that I had a right to intimacy. I have no idea how I implement that, but I have it. Um, somebody, uh, five people on the Supreme Court... Looked you have a right to define your own concept of existence, too. Which is really concerning within the confines of a natural rights theory. Right. Um, right, five people in the Supreme Court looked really closely and found something in the text of the 14th Amendment that nobody had read for the past 150 years. So that's kind of concerning to me as someone who cares about not having judicial overreaching. Um, is, uh, so, so I suppose the substance of the question is really to what extent pragmatically should conservative libertarian judges defer to the doctrine of unenumerated rights versus try to stick to the enumerated rights and point out that the doctrine of unenumerated rights has resulted in pretty substantial abuse. You know, wh where does that balance lie? What do we do about that? All right, this is a really good question. Uh, this is more something I want to talk about tomorrow. Uh, so feel free to come up and ask. If I don't answer the question tomorrow better than I'm about to, get on the microphone and ask it again, because it's a really good question. My own view is that, for example, the Ninth Amendment expressly refers to unenumerated rights. It says the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people, these other unenumerated rights. That's recognized. That's true. And the Declaration says it is to secure these rights that governments are instituted among men. I think all of that is true. That doesn't mean that judges should be making up rights, that judges should be discovering rights, that judges should be identifying them and enforcing them. Maybe they should. Maybe you would have a better sausage-making machine or law-making machine, getting back to that metaphor, if judges did make up rights and enforce them. But maybe it would be worse one. It's possible giving judges the power to make up rights would actually cause rights to be violated. And so what judges should do does not automatically follow from the fact that first come rights and then come government. My own view, as, and I, this is the, the view I've defended for... Um, over 10 years, so this is not something I've come upon recently, in 15 years I would say, is that, that judges should largely not be identifying unenumerated rights. What they should be doing is holding government to the reasonable exercise of its legitimate powers. So we can have a, we will still need to have a debate about what powers of government are legitimate. What is government for? We would say, well, protection of rights is good, health and safety. We, we'd have a number of things. Then we'd get to some issues like redistribution that we would argue about. But we would basically ask, what are the purposes of government? And are, is a particular law that's being passed that restricts liberty, is it an unreasonable or arbitrary restriction of liberty? And then the focus would be away from the liberty, because the liberty wouldn't be doing that much work except to say it's being restricted. And the focus would turn instead to what is the justification for restricting this liberty, and, and is this a reasonable regulation of liberty, or is it, and judges should be asking this question too, is it really a way of helping out a special interest group, this law? Was this really a way of helping out this one special interest group from being competed against or from competition with, from another group, which is not a proper purpose of government, which requires equal protection of all? So we would sh judges should shift their focus from identifying rights to identifying the purposes of laws and asking whether they are actually being used to serve those purposes and not some other ulterior purpose. How many of you have heard of the Institute for Justice, a heroic institution as far as I'm concerned? I'm, I'm closely affiliated with, as I am with Cato. Uh, and, and they have an entire litigation strategy based on holding government to 
um, its public purposes in saying, well, what is the real purpose of this law? And this, and it doesn't have a public. Why should these 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 monks not be allowed to make caskets and sell them to the public? What is the health and safety rationale that they can't make this box to bury people in? Tell us what it is. And it turns out there isn't a health and safety law rationale. That's what judges should be doing, in my view. And that's a way of protecting the liberty without speculating about what the rights of man are, something judges are not as good at. This will come up again tomorrow as well. Thanks. Okay. Um, I'm Meredith Lockman. I just graduated from college. I'm about to go do a master's in political theory at the London School of Economics. So you mentioned the Declaration of Independence conceives of rights as inalienable, inalienable, so they can't be transferred, you can't give them up, which reminds me of Hobbes's conception of how men have rights to security. So they have a right to their own person, they can't give that up, it can't be transferred. However, Hobbes also has the state, the sovereign who is allowed to kill, to imprison, you know, the, the, the sovereign has these excessive powers. But because Hobbes gives this right to man, that he has this right to security, the man is not allowed to um, submit to being killed or submit to being imprisoned by the sovereign. So his inalienable right prevents him from choosing to allow himself to die or to be imprisoned. I was wondering if there's a similar conception, you think, under Jefferson or Mason's conception of these rights, or whether or not you can um, allow yourself to be a slave. You can choose that or you can allow, to be, you can allow yourself to be killed. Um, I do think that um, the founders who were Lockeans in a general broad sense, not Hobbesians, uh, did believe in unalienable rights and that you could not sell yourself into slavery. You could not. Uh, and um, Locke had a particular reason for that, which had to do with God owning us. Um, and that's his reason. So I would say my own view is that uh, you, you can't, your, your unalienable right to your own person is something that can't be given away. And it can't be traded for. You can work for somebody. You can freely agree to do something. But once you change your mind, then you can get out of it. Um, and that's true of labor contracts as well. I'm a contracts professor. I, generally speaking, labor contracts cannot be specifically enforced in contract law. You can have to pay damages if you breach a labor contract. But you can't be physically compelled to perform that labor. Um, and that would be the view I have. I, I would just make a more general statement about Hobbes versus Locke uh, because there, there's you know, because you're going to go into London School of Economics and study, you're obviously interested in Hobbes, and there's some very interesting work that's been done on Hobbes recently. It used to be Hobbes, nobody was a Hobbesian, because uh, he was just such a bad guy. It would seem his th views were so bad and dangerous. Uh, but nowadays, there are actually are Hobbesians who find more liberal aspects of Hobbes than people have seen before. But there's a the big difference between the Lockean, Locke and Hobbes' approach is what they're how they conceived of the state of nature. Um, Hobbes conceded of the state of nature as nasty, solitary, British, and short. Um, British. Oh, it was brutish and short, sorry. Nasty, nasty, solitary, brutish, and short. It was kind of the same thing. Um, so, the, uh, uh, so that's how, and in the state of nature, everybody was at liberty, had a natural liberty or right to do anything they will with anybody, anything or anybody, including another person's body. So natural liberty in the state of nature for Hobbes was unlimited liberty, unlimited what we would call freedom or, or at freedom of action. And therefore, government was necessary to limit liberty. The first duty of government is to restrict liberty so that you don't exercise it in a way that damages others. You can see why that vision of the state of nature leads to a vision of government where the purpose of government is limiting liberty. It's the reason it, many people today are closet Hobbesians because that's what they think government is for, limiting liberty so everybody doesn't do whatever they will. The, Hobbesian, the Lockean view of liberty was quite different. In the Lockean view of liberty, everyone had the right to do what they will with what's theirs. 
That's the difference. Hobbs, everybody has the right to do what they will. Locke, everybody has the right to do what they will with what's theirs, which means they can't interfere justly with the rights of others, even though in the state of nature, it may not always be clear whose rights are which, and which is why we need a legislature, we need laws. It may not, you may not be able to enforce your, law, your rights effectively, which is why we need executive power, and you may not be impartial in adjudicating disputes with other people, which is why we need a judiciary, and these were what he called the inconveniences of a state of nature. We can do better than the state of nature, but it, even in the state of nature, everyone has rights. And it violates another person's rights uh, to, uh, to affect their life, liberty, or possessions, which is the quote I actually used. That's the huge major difference between Hobbes and Locke. And the founders, whatever else you want to say about them, were not Hobbesians. They were Lockeans, although there are people today who would read Hobbes back into the founding period. Um, uh, some Straussians kind of do this. And so I would just advise against that. Thanks. Thank you. Yes. Uh, I'm John Zaleski. I'm a high school student. I was wondering how you think the principles in the Declaration of Independence compare to other documents like the French Declaration of Rights that came later. Um, I don't really have an expert opinion about that, I'm afraid. Uh, I, I do find as I get older, the more I know about some stuff, the less I seem to know about other stuff. Uh, and it used to be when I was younger, I knew a lot more about everything uh, because I was, prepared, I, was, I was prepared to express opinion on just about anything. And so now I kind of try to stick to what I know more about, and I don't have an expert opinion on the relationship between the French Declaration of Rights. Um, it sounded good, I guess, but uh, they... Messed it up in some respects, I guess. Sorry. My name's Will Duffield. I'm an intern here at Cato, and I'll also be going to LSE next year. Um, I was wondering what your thoughts were on John Hasness's formulation of empirical natural rights or developmental natural rights. They often seem to come to most of the same ends as stricter Lockean natural rights, but they're fuzzier and are often learned through experience. I'd previously thought that those were fairly separate from how natural rights were understood, but the way that you've presented natural rights is similar to um, sort of the law of gravity, um, brings them a little bit closer. Uh, what are your thoughts on? I know, I've known John for many, many years, um, and we go way back. And um, when I used to lecture for the Institute for Humane Studies in the summer, then uh, he actually picked, and I stopped lecturing, at, he actually picked up the ball and was lecturing in my place and from, for many years. I'm not exactly sure about his view of this. And so um, I'm pleased to hear, and I'm not surprised to hear, that there's a similarity between what he's saying and what I'm saying. And, and I, but I, my guess is, knowing John as well as I do, there's got to be differences there, too. He's very distinctive in his thinking. So I would say, yes, uh, it wouldn't surprise me, given our common background, that we have a similar empirical basis to our claims about rights. But I wouldn't take for granted that he means exactly what I mean. We, OK, uh, last question. Hi, I'm Isaac Duarte. I just got my bachelor's in philosophy from the University of Arizona. Mazel tov. So you mentioned that you uh, support polycentric legal order, like John Hasnas. Um, your skepticism of uh, tacit consent sounds like, uh, like humors, uh, problems of uh, political authority. Both those guys identify as anarchists. Are you an anarchist? Is that a useful distinction? <laughs> um, no, I mean, I don't use the A word, and uh, don't recommend anybody does, does use the A word. Um, what I, I, made a limited argument in, I, I made a limited argument in my book. Um, about the ability to, to provide law and legal services 
competitively. I don't have an expert opinion, for example, on national defense and how it can be provided. Um, to be, to go all the way, one would have to find a way of doing that. I grew up in the libertarian movement. I know about a lot of stories and, and theories about how this could be done, uh, but it isn't something that I'm an expert on. My limited expertise is on the law and on the Constitution, and in that realm, I do think polycentric legal order is quite feasible, um, and that's a step in that direction. Let me just ask, but let me just say, and this will be the last thing I say, about why it's worthwhile talking about anarchism, no government, polycentric legal, whatever they are. Why, why is it worth thinking about? Because I think it is worth thinking about. It's worth thinking about because of um, the reductio ad absurdum that's used against libertarian arguments, which is if you take your argument to its logical extreme, it would lead to X, and X is obviously unjustified, and therefore, and it's terrible and chaotic, and therefore, you shouldn't even take a single step in the direction of X, because that undermines your whole argument, uh, because, that, because it will ultimately lead to this, this terrible, chaotic, anarchic state. Uh, one reason to talk, think about the end state is because if, in fact, the end state really isn't so terrible, it could actually work and maybe be better than the world we live in. Even if it's never going to come about, it eliminates the statist argument against taking one step in the direction of liberty, which is how they use that, what, what um, George Smith has called the specter of anarchy. The specter of anarchy is the idea that your views will lead there, and therefore we shouldn't take any steps in the direction of liberty. So that's why it's worth thinking about these ideas seriously, not because we think they'll be implemented tomorrow or even in our lifetime or even in our children's lifetime, because it, but because it deprives status, people who believe in the state and argue against any movement in the direction of liberty, of one of their arguments against us, which is the reductio ad absurdum. That's what I would say. And thanks very much. I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs>